This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, which supports informed and engaged communities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Attitudes towards free speech are evolving as more of our discourse takes place online. Debates continue over how content on social media should be regulated and who ultimately bears responsibility for online speech. First, you'll hear from Lisey Bollinger, president of Columbia University. Following Mr. Bollinger's segment, Marianne Franks, professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law, and Daphne Keller, director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center, will discuss the future of free expression in the U.S. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome the president of Columbia University, Lee Bollinger. President Bollinger, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. So President Bollinger, you are an expert on the First Amendment, one of the nation's foremost scholars, and also you've written extensively on freedom of the press. I'd like to start by stepping back and looking at the unique nature of America's speech laws. The country's possibly the most permissive of hate speech of any Western democracy. How did we get here? So that's a fascinating question. I think one has to start with the fact that even though the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment as the uh, first one of those uh, was really part of the Constitution from the 18th century, there was no Supreme Court case interpreting those words in the First Amendment uh, until 1919. So from 1919 until today, which is obviously a century, uh, the Supreme Court and lower courts have built up a body of jurisprudence that is remarkable. I mean, it's the most elaborate uh, exploration of what freedom of speech and freedom of the press mean uh, in any uh, country. And, and the degree, as you point out, the protection that has been afforded to speech in the United States really since uh, the last half century is the strongest, uh, most protective uh, system that has ever been set up by a society. Do you believe this expansive reading of the First Amendment is appropriate today, or are your views evolving in the internet age? So I think one always has to reflect on that. I think um, uh, I think one does have to be prepared to evolve as facts change and our understandings of the needs of society change. But I'm largely of the view that what um, has been developed by the Supreme Court since the um, that 1950s, 1960s period uh, is right. I think that was a profound achievement. Uh, the body of doctrine that we have from that period has stood the country really well, has uh, been a model for the rest of the world. Uh, and on the whole, uh, I think is uh, really stunningly um, uh, important. So just briefly, um, tell me what precipitated previous controversies or debates around the First Amendment and how are those tensions similar to the ones we see arising today on college campuses and newspapers and of course online? Yep. So, um, you know, th there's not a year that goes by that there are not new free speech controversies. and. Uh, uh, that has been true, uh, of course, for um, for centuries. And if you go back to the origins of the Supreme Court jurisprudence, which I said began in 1919, they came out of controversies about America's involvement in World War uh, One, um, out of controversies around uh, ideologies of uh, communism and socialism, about issues of labor. Uh, and you have in that period um, uh, many, many people arrested, prosecuted, um, imprisoned, including a candidate for president of the United States, Eugene Debs, because of opposition uh, that they expressed towards these uh, various national policies. The other period that is really notable uh, in this regard is the 1950s and, of course, the McCarthy um, era. 
And there, the arrest, prosecution, uh, treatment of people who were deemed to be uh, communist or communist sympathizers uh, was another point of enormous controversy and a low point in the development and history of the First Amendment. The 1960s brought this uh, incredible uh, flourishing of thinking and um, imagination applied to how to deal with these sorts of issues of extremist speech, of libel and defamation, and and so on. And that, of course, was the civil rights era, which had a profound effect on the development of the First Amendment, anti-war movements, and, and so on. So that continues today. And of course, all the issues that we have surrounding uh, the policies, the election, uh, voting um, uh, issues of uh, uh, racism and 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 so on in the society generate uh, really profound First Amendment free speech, free press questions. I'm interested in these periods of turmoil you talk about when these issues came up, and of course some going back to the 1930s or a little bit later with communism and the arrival of fascism, also coordinated with the arrival of uh, radio and television and how much the extent of a new medium um, yeah. allowed these uh, debates to arise. What's your thought on that? So this is again a really profound and highly interesting era, area. Um, it has been the case, I think, that any new major technology of communication uh, unsettles uh, people. Uh, people fear that it will lead to uh, uh, manipulation of public opinion, manipulation of behavior, disinformation, uh, spread of seditious ideas. Uh, people are uh, uh, wary of new technologies of communication. It's also the case that they may well uh, make life much more difficult. Um, and so there are good reasons uh, to be concerned about them. In 19, the 1920s, uh, radio was introduced into America and it was legislation in 1927, followed by, of course, the major 34 Communications Act that took that new technology of communication, broadcasting, which eventually incorporated both um, uh, television and, and uh, cable, and put them in a different kind of uh, regime of regulation and a different um, uh, a doctrinal structure of the First Amendment. By the late 1960s, early 70s, uh, we had a, a quite uh, a differential treatment, is what I've called it, of these two, um, of the print media and the broadcast media. Print media have been totally free of government regulation, protected uh, in that. Um, radio and TV and cable have been subject to public regulation, licensing system, some degree of content regulation like the Fairness Doctrine or Equal Time Provision, and that has remained more or less in place uh, up to uh, today. The internet uh, is, of course, the, the new major uh, development in a new technology of communication, and we're still trying to figure out uh, how that fits into uh, to this jurisprudence and, and our uh, public discussion of ideas. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. But first, I'd like to take you back to a 2019 talk you made in which you um, referred to President Trump's uh, comments following Charlottesville that there were um, very fine people on both sides. Um, and you and I, I'm going to read your words. Um, you used that an as an example of departing from norms and said, in order for us to protect extremist hate speech, we have to agree basically that's horrible. How do we set the moral compass today in such a partisan world? How, where is that, that center um, that you seem to be reaching for in the speech? Well, I was making a point there, which I'll get to in a second. Um, uh, but um, I think you reach that moral compass by people speaking out and articulating uh, a moral uh, compass. So, uh, and we do it through enactment of laws and we do it through constitutional adjudication. I mean, there are countless ways in which we are constantly setting the moral ethical standards of, uh, of the society. The point I was making then uh, uh, is this. Uh, as you said, and I uh, repeated at the beginning of the discussion, 
the United States has, since the 1960s, for the half, last half century, given more protection to speech, uh, extremist speech, hate speech, than any other society. It's a very complicated issue, uh, but, uh, but the result of uh, Supreme Court adjudication has been clear. Neo-Nazi speech, Klan speech, etc., all these uh, have resulted in cases, and the Supreme Court has uh, developed the doctrine that these uh, ideas, as odious as they are, are nevertheless protected until the point where they incite imminent lawless action. That's the kind of test that has been devised. So we have to live with these uh, ideas. We have to counter them. We must uh, uh, speak about them. Uh, we, we must use our speech uh, to counteract uh, the evil effects of this, these ideas. The entire system uh, of extreme protection for speech in the society uh, depends upon both the courts and public leaders, especially uh, condemning the ideas as at the same time they are being protected. So if you look at all the Supreme Court cases that deal with extremist speech, they include very explicit rejection of the ideas. Once it happens that uh, there's condemnation of these ideas, the critical condition for that level of protection begins to change because the worst thing that can happen is that we end up looking uh, and feeling and being a society uh, in which uh, uh, people think and we are neutral towards uh, really bad and, and potentially evil um, uh, ideas. So in one sense, um, it, it was, of course, um, problematic and terrible in the context in which this um, happened, uh, just to have that um, uh, seeming approval. Um, but it also plays into a deeper structural um, uh, sort of understanding that we've arrived at in the United States about how to think about protection of speech and at the same time, how to maintain a moral compass, as you said. So I have a question, I was struggling with this online where um, the, the notion of countering bad speech with good speech can be very hard because Online, one can become caught up in a reinforcing area of speech, and you don't see that counterbalance. How do we manage with that um, today? Yeah. How do you how do you counter what I'm talking about? Right. So I think you know that is one of the great questions of our time. Uh, if one agrees with the um, approach that we've taken over the past fifty years, as I do, and I've written about this and the various rationales for uh, why this uh, makes good sense constitutionally and, and um, legally and just as a matter of social uh, life. If you agree with that, uh, you then have to face the question, have the circumstances changed in material ways with respect to that speech uh, and the dangers uh, that that speech now poses because of uh, the introduction of these new technologies, the social media uh, platforms uh, uh, and the internet generally. Um, I think the, the jury is still out on that question. I mean, that will become over the next decade something that uh, we will all uh, have to face, uh, including the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, if you have a uh, society in which those really, really uh, dangerous ideas uh, have spread uh, really broadly within the society and are aided in that by the type of um, means of communication that are available to them, you do have a different uh, context uh, than you did in, 19, in the 1960s when the Supreme Court decided that a small group of the Klan uh, that met and uh, was put on television uh, really did not uh, justify the government in coming in and censoring the speech. Well, if, um, if the uh, 
if if the scope of the uh, of these really bad ideas is much greater if the density um, uh, of these ideas in a society much deeper, um, you may perhaps have a, a need for a different result. But that is an open question, remains to be seen. So, so the jurisprudence isn't settled, but you've written about the danger of unregulated social media patterns, sorry, platforms. Earlier on, you talked about the different regulatory standards for right. um, newspapers than for uh, broadcast mediums. Where do you see social media fitting in? An entirely new regime or somewhere between the other two? How does it, how does it work practically? So, so I'm wrestling with this um, as I think every First Amendment scholar and every a citizen must. Uh, my uh, good friend and colleague whom I've uh, written with, Jeff Stone at the University of Chicago Law School, and I are just beginning to think about a, um, uh, a volume that might uh, try to address this and in um, deep and, and um, practical ways. Um, I mean, I do think, I, I start with the idea that the um, we've seen this before, as I indicated, it's not an entirely new problem. Uh, the new technology of broadcasting was feared for the same reasons. That is the uh, the risk of the spread of dangerous and um, and really uh, pernicious uh, ideas and beliefs uh, required some kind of public intervention. And uh, the fear that the monopolization of uh, public discourse by these new companies uh, in the broadcast arena required some degree of protection um, of people receiving all different forms of ideas. That's another issue that has come up, of course, with respect to social media platforms, that not only is there a risk of the spread of dangerous ideas and uh, bad ideas, but also the risk of um, uh, really great censorship uh, that these private companies can exercise because of their uh, incredible uh, control over the public discussion, public ideas. So um, we've seen this before. We've set up a, a, a system to uh, deal with this. It has worked, I think, reasonably well. I believe it was, it was certainly upheld by the Supreme Court. I've written a lot about this. I think it was uh, justified and, and right to do what the court said, to have a system for the print media and a different one uh, for the broadcast media. Um, my uh, sense uh, and my inclination is, is that we're going to have to figure out something along these lines uh, for this new uh, state of affairs, but I'm not certain yet exactly what that will look like. So how do you respond directly to those who argue that Facebook and or another uh, company should have total control over their content? What's your response at this point? Is it wait and see or? I think, well, there are a lot of people doing extensive work on this question. That is, what are the consequences for public discussion of public issues, especially um, as a result of the of the ways in which we communicate and the ways in which these uh, uh, technologies are organized um, and, and what is the upshot. I think scholarship is our first requirement, uh, our first condition, that is, what do we actually know? It's very easy to take uh, single anecdotes and examples uh, and to, um, you know, extrapolate from that what should be a, a result. We really want to be extremely careful about this. I mean, one of the things the First Amendment has has been con conditioned on is a belief that the government intervention into the arena of speech is highly dangerous and should only be permitted under very careful circumstances. So we need scholarship. We need to know what we're facing. And then we need to um, uh, figure out how to counteract it. And, I mean, we do have attention. Uh, we have private companies that are designed to make money, and that's what, uh, of course, private enterprise is all about. Public discussion of public issues is is not uh, solely uh, a matter of uh, profit-making institutions. And you need, um, I mean, in the print media, you know that, uh, of course, uh, profit-making, but on the other hand, there's an ethos, uh, a culture, 
uh, about how to discuss public issues that is longstanding and extremely important. Will we develop I, that in the context of the media, social media platforms? It remains to be seen. I can't resist asking the journalist's question, but does scholarship move quickly enough in this era of instant communication? Yeah, uh, I, it's a good question. Could be um, that we uh, suffer enormous consequences uh, too late. Um, but there again, one has to make a judgment. And uh, I think one of the things that the First Amendment and the jurisprudence and the case law and the writings about it teach us uh, is that uh, government regulation of speech really should be the last resort um, and when only when we're really really clear uh, that this is required uh, in order to save us from uh, worse consequences should we allow intervention so uh, and i'm happy to say uh, that there is an extensive uh, body of, of scholarship now looking at these questions and publishing about them. So we've got an incre vastly increased number of information gatekeepers, but also mm -hmm. groups like WikiLeaks, which um, publish uh, information that could be deemed dangerous to the government. How do you think we should manage them in this uh, era? So, um, Again, Jeff Stone and I have just uh, completed a book uh, on this subject, uh, Pentagon Papers, that will come out in um, the spring. And here again, uh, we, we developed in the 1970s uh, this extraordinary approach to how to balance the government's interest, completely reasonable in being able to operate with some degree of secrecy, and the interest of the public in knowing what the government is doing. We all know that the government overclassifies, is overly secret, and uh, we do need to have uh, some countervailing uh, interest of the public in knowing what's going on served. Well, the system was um, the government can operate in secret. Uh, people can leak information to the press. They can be punished for that. But the press has total freedom, basically, to publish the information and to make the judgments about what should be published and what should be kept secret. That system of Pentagon Papers, uh, I think most people would say, I certainly would say, has served us very well. Now again, we have the new technologies of communication and we have different actors, much greater material classified information can be released on a computer. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg was 7,000 pages, but Edward Snowden was millions, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of pages. Um, and we have players like WikiLeaks, as you say, that uh, are not the Washington Post, not the New York Times, do not have the interests of the United States at heart, uh, have an underlying belief in uh, disclosure way beyond, I think, what is uh, reasonable. And now the question is, uh, should the Pentagon Papers regime be revised in light of these new circumstances? Um, is the threat to um, government um, uh, interest in uh, secrecy uh, now uh, just uh, at real risk because of the introduction of these new players? That's a profound First Amendment question as well. So I want to circle back to our, our discussion about social media platforms and Trump's um, uh, desire to repeal Section 230. For those viewers who don't know what that is, it's a 1990 laws that, 1990s law that gives um, liability protection to uh, companies that post third-party matter on their sites. Um, talk to us about Trump's uh, request to repeal this, what it means. Well, um, as you know, uh, and as Don Graham and I wrote uh, a week or so ago on um, uh, this issue, um, President Trump, in uh, apparent uh, anger at Twitter for um, having fact-checked and um, labeling uh, a tweet as misleading, potentially misleading, uh, announced that um, uh, in sort of punishment for this, uh, uh, Twitter would be uh, subject to um, 
uh, attack as other social media platforms would as well <clears throat> by changing the law to take away the protection they have against uh, being sued for speech that they publish, which is extremely important to them, and some other things which I won't go into. The main point here <clears throat> is that whatever one thinks about the underlying laws of Section 230 and, and other uh, policies, uh, it, it is simply inconsistent with the First Amendment and the constitutional development of the past uh, uh, century and beyond uh, for the government to try to punish um, uh, speakers, and that includes uh, uh, the press or social media platforms at the moment, um, because of the content of what it is that these uh, speakers have uh, commun communicated. That is a deeply, deeply troubling um, motivation. I mean, we should all be concerned that the law would be turned and twisted and changed, uh, not because of the balance of interests, uh, but because of a desire to punish uh, speakers for what they say and the content. And so that really need to be needed to be highlighted uh, for the seriousness of what um, was involved there. So you told me earlier on that you teach a large uh, 101 uh, class on the First Amendment. I'm curious about how student views have changed. You obviously didn't grow up in the era of the Internet. They did. Uh, how have your classes changed as, you, as you've cha as you've taught this class over the years? How have the views changed? Well, I think that students today are, um, I think they are aware, just like uh, we are, and what you said earlier is an indication um, uh, of the breadth of this, uh, aware of the concerns that the ways in which uh, public discussion of public uh, issues is being conducted today um, is deeply concerning, maybe even alarming, and maybe even requiring some degree of public uh, intervention. So I think <clears throat> that they they are receptive. Um, they certainly see the problems. And I think as any reasonable person should be receptive to thinking through what should be the the um, system for for this new world. I think there's also, a, um, you know, one of the, the problems of hate speech and what we talked about earlier, extremist speech. The, if you look back over the past hundred years, the Supreme Court has taken diametrically opposed views on this. So uh, there's a case from the early 1950s uh, where group libel, as it was called, uh, racist speech uh, in that case against uh, African-Americans and the majority of the Supreme Court said uh, regulating that kind of speech is just fine. Um, but it was in the late 1960s that that uh, decision was not overruled, but implicitly overruled, and a different approach was taken. Uh, how to think about the limits of protection for speech at these edges, uh, where this particularly bad speech um, uh, takes place, is something that is, you know, extremely diff difficult, uh, lots of different concerns and something to struggle with uh, over and over again. So I am, um, I am very attuned, I think, to um, a students feeling that that is something that they want to struggle with too. I have probably only a minute left, but I do have one question I'd like to ask you briefly, and I'm afraid it's a biggish question, but you're the president of a huge university, a private university. How do you decide who appears on your campus? Uh, what are the issues and how are those decisions made? And I'm, I apologize for a big question in a short moment, but just give me an idea of the, the issues at play there. So I, I think, you know, you try um, not to be, you're not a partisan institution. I mean, the universities take no position on trade policy or what, but you do want to be a center for discussing these. I mean, people do serious work on this and there are practical consequences and universities should be a place in which all ideas are discussed. So we really try, I think, across the institution to get an array of different views and, and uh, debates and so on, on on public issues. 
But I have to say, I mean, the scholarly work uh, is driven by other kinds of uh, concerns, how to add new knowledge, the disciplines, uh, and how to think through things, discover uh, new ideas. I mean, that that's so there are two different parts of a university, the scholarship, the research, the teaching, and then the center, the forum for public debate. And on that, we try to be as balanced and, and uh, as comprehensive as we possibly can. President Bollinger, many thanks for joining me this thank morning. That was fascinating. Thank you very much, Francis. I'll be back in a few minutes with two legal experts on online discourse. Marianne Franks from the University of Miami Law School and Delphine Daphne Keller from Stanford. Join us again soon. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. And I'm glad to welcome now two experts, legal experts in online content regulation. Marianne Franks is from the University of Miami and she works on cybersecurity issues, cyber civil liberty issues. Daphne Keller is from Stanford Cyber Policy Center and she was formerly the Assistant General Counsel at Google. Mary Ann and Daphne, welcome to you both. Thank you. Delighted to have you and looking forward to a conversation with you both. So I'd like to start with one of the conversations close to the end of uh, my conversation with President Bollinger and Section 230. Marianne, perhaps you can start by taking us back, explaining uh, that 1990s uh, law and why the president objects to it so strongly. Well, the first part's a little bit more complicated than the second. So the first part is 1996. The internet is a fairly new uh, medium and the story, at least the received story, is that the concern was that if you regulated this industry too much that you would end up choking this uh, really wonderful new opportunity for people to communicate and to truly um, enforce the principles of free speech. And so this law was at least, again, the, according to the conventional narrative, passed as a way of saying let's, let's kind of have a hands-off approach to these platforms, let them have their own um, sort of abilities to assess for themselves what kind of content should be promoted on their platforms and and see what happens. And you could say, of course, that really what was going on in 1996 was either um, was either this, either a kind of moment where government officials were really very prescient to know that the internet was going to be so important and took the right steps to ensuring that government regulation wouldn't interfere with it. Or you could say that this was another example of the government recognizing that there were powerful commercial and other interests um, at stake in the internet and that providing this extremely broad shield was going to do what those kinds of protections tend to always do, which is to protect the most powerful and to really excuse um, people from the negative consequences of their actions. But regardless of how we think it was originally intended, what we've got today is a law that has been really interpreted to make sure that these companies have no incentive to deal with the negative consequences of their um, patterns of behavior, other than perhaps public pressure, which can be powerful if we have a functioning society, um, but otherwise not really facing any kind of negative pressures, um, at least on the legal sense for the kinds of conduct and information and communication that happens on these platforms. And then you get to um, President Trump, who's opposed to Section 230, as you might expect, not because he's principled or because he cares about either free speech or about uh, communications generally or principles um, generally, but is upset because he thinks that the social media companies aren't properly deferential to him. Um, so is taking the position that Section 230 is not making it um, as as good for him as he as he would like it to be in terms of being able to promote whatever kinds of information um, or disinformation he wants to promote, no matter who he wants to harass or how much he wants to lie or how much he wants to spread um, really deadly, deadly misinformation and disinformation. He wants um, the ability essentially to commandeer these social media platforms and have them become basically propaganda outlets and no more. And so it's well, presented. Yes. I'd like to turn to Daphne on that one and ask about the implications of the president's executive order for free speech and whether you believe that conservative voices are being uh, tamped down um, unfairly. Sure. Well, that second question is pretty hard to answer. You know, that there is no meaningful data out there suggesting 
that the conservative bias narrative is true and that conservatives are being disproportionately silenced. Um, on the other hand, there's just not very good data at all. And so it's not particularly surprising that lots and lots of groups across the political spectrum think that they are being uniquely penalized. Um, you hear complaints from Black Lives Matter, for example, suggesting that maybe African-American speakers are being disproportionately penalized. So th this isn't um, this concern that sort of the gatekeepers of our most important discussions might be putting the thumb on the scales in, in a way we don't like isn't really unique to conservatives. Um, but what is unique to conservatives right now is political power, right? And so we see things like President Trump's executive order in June and following up on that, the draft legislation uh, proposed by the Justice Department just a couple of weeks ago um, and similar legislation proposed by legislators, including Lindsey Graham. And, um, you know, what that legislation would do, and here I very much agree uh, with, with Mary Ann's description, is effectively sort of try to dictate new speech policies to platforms, telling them what content, what user speech they can take down without worrying about liability and what speech they might want to leave up for fear of risking liability. Um, the complicated thing, though, is that a lot of this speech is what you might call lawful but awful. It's speech that many, many people disapprove of on, a mor on moral grounds or on policy grounds. Um, disinformation about uh, medical issues or about elections, hate speech, things that Congress can't regulate because of the First Amendment, or at least because of the First Amendment as interpreted by courts now, um, but that many people want taken down by platforms. And so in this lawful but awful category, Right now, platforms have extremely broad discretion to take down whatever they decide violates their policies uh, and not face lawsuits from the people whose content they took down. That's part of CDA 230. What would change under the proposals from the Justice Department and Senator Graham um, is that there's sort of an enumerated list of government approved reasons for taking down lawful but awful speech. Uh, platforms can safely take down pornography. They can safely take down advocacy of terrorism or uh, you know, barely legal harassment. But what's conspicuously missing from that list is things like white nationalism, hate speech, uh, organizing the Charlottesville rally, electoral disinformation. Those are things that if platforms um, platforms can safely take down now, but if these proposals passed, they would not be safe taking those things down and they would face new lawsuits. So just to go back to Marianne on that point, um, I think you've written that, but in, in fact checking Trump's tweets that Twitter was exercising its own First Amendment rights as a sort of counter speech. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for me and for our viewers? Certainly. This is one of the things that tends to get lost sometimes in these conversations about social media platforms is that they are private companies that have their own powers of the First Amendment to speak. And particularly when a social media platform decides to add its own warnings or when it says when it wants to promote statements that say this is disinformation or provide its own resources to say here is better speech. That is sort of a classic example of counter speech, right? If you want to um, try to speak back to bad speech, one of the classic ways that's been recognized by the First Amendment doctrine that we have is to speak back. And as a private actor, Twitter has that power as a First Amendment, um, their own First Amendment protected liberty to speak back. And so the particular irony of the complaints being made about Twitter finally, very belatedly, taking some very modest steps against rampant disinformation or other harmful content is that the criticism of them for doing that is basically criticism of free speech itself. So Daphne, you referred a few minutes ago to some of the legislative proposals out there. Just briefly give me a sense of the breadth of those proposals. And I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball, but what do you uh, foresee happening? What, what would you predict at this point? Uh, uh, ask me again in a month or maybe two months. Um, you know, the, the outcome of this election is really determinant of so many things, but certainly determinant of, of directions in this space. Um, you know, b both 
um, President Trump and uh, former Vice President Biden have said that they want to repeal CDA 230. I think that when Biden says that, it is a proxy for something much more nuanced. Um, and when President Trump says that, may maybe it isn't. Um, but, you know, as of now, there are, I think, 17 bills that have been introduced over the past year. Uh, I tweeted a list of them yesterday, so you can find the list if you're interested. Um, from both sides of the aisle, often seeking conflicting outcomes, you know, Democratic proposals often seeking to make platforms take down more content, uh, Republican proposals often seeking to make them take down less content. Um, many of them are sort of political theater and, and don't have much future, um, but, but some of them have some traction, including a law called the Earn It Act, which sounds really good. It is targeting very serious problems with child sexual abuse material, but is doing so by introducing a set of rules that are very, very poorly thought through. So that unfortunately is one that has relatively more traction. Um, there's one, a bipartisan bill from Senators uh, Schatz and Thune, that's probably the most nuanced attempt to actually get into the operational questions of how do platforms take down content and what rules do we want to set so that they take down the right content rather than just taking down any content that somebody alleges is illegal. Um, because a big problem that we, we know crops up in um, notice and takedown systems, which is what we would have absent CDA 230, is that they are abused. People send in false allegations to try to silence the speech of people they disagree with or try to cut down traffic to commercial competitors. Uh, there are really outrageous examples like the government of Ecuador using um, bogus copyright complaints to silence critical journalism and take down videos of police brutality. Um, we know that there's a big problem with platforms erring on the side of taking down important and lawful speech if there aren't sort of procedural rules in the law to try to correct for that. And so I think we should be looking um, for, to the extent there is CDA 230 change, we should be looking for proposals that do pay attention to those operational details and don't just say, okay, we're eliminating 70, CDA 230 entirely, it's a free-for-all, or everybody be reasonable, or everybody don't be negligent and impose sort of fuzzy standards that don't tell platforms what to do. So Marianne, um, in terms of self-regulation, Facebook now has its Supreme Court of Content as an international group. Tell me where you think that is a, whether you think that's a good thing, how you think it's working. Is this a way ahead? I think it's a very telling thing that what you have on the part of Facebook is, first of all, the adoption of this kind of quasi-legal um, body and this quasi-lingual language, is, which is part of why arguably we've gotten into this mess to begin with. The fact that Facebook thinks of itself as a kind of legislative body or thinks of itself as a quasi-legal institution when in fact it is not. So I think that that's not helpful in the sense that it kind of contributes to this idea that Facebook is, is that kind of entity. But it's also ironic that, of course, what Facebook is doing here is appointing its own uh, boards for oversight, and that tells you a lot. It doesn't mean they can't do good work. It doesn't mean that they're not going to get some very valuable information from some very um, deeply uh, sensitive and, and nuanced thinkers, but it's not at all a response um, to what is actually happening when it comes to the deep problems with this industry. And that is to say, what you really need is some kind of objective um, measure of what is going on on these platforms and what's going wrong. So while it's um, in some ways a good sign that you see that Facebook and other companies are acknowledging that they have problems and that they need to have experts in the room, this is kind of a backwards approach. That's the kind of thinking they should have been doing before these platforms were rolled out, before they add features like live streaming, before they um, allow people to communicate instantaneously without any way of dealing with the aftermath. So. All of this, I'd say, is really too little too late. Um, it may make for some less bad practices in the future, but it's not going to stem the tide of, um, it's really just not going to get us out of the information dystopia that we're in right now. Well, that very phrase, too little too late, takes me back to Daphne. And I had a question for you about um, news yesterday that, that, that Facebook is stepping up efforts to clamp down on QAnon. Is that too little too late, or do you see it as a promising step? Uh, a, a little bit of each, um, you know, I, I think um, I, 
Facebook has made a lot of missteps. Um, at the same time, I have some sympathy for them. They are in a situation where no matter what they do with very politically contentious speech, about 50% of very powerful people in Washington will get angry with them. Um, and so um, that, that puts them in a situation where there's one question about what's the right thing to do. And you know, many of us have opinion, strong opinions about that. Um, and another question about what will be the real world regulatory consequences of what they do? And we know from Trump's executive order that sometimes the real world consequences of not doing what powerful people in government want you to do can be very real. You know, it can be a directive for the Justice Department to try to uh, promote new legislation against you. It can be a directive, uh, as in that order, for the federal government to look into maybe not running any ads with you anymore because it disapproves of your editorial policy. Um, and so I, I think the a larger problem that we should be thinking about here is not just what should platforms be doing as an ethical matter, but how should government be using its power? Like, is it appropriate um, for uh, government actors to effectively try to strong arm platforms into adopting particular editorial policies that are the government's preference, um, but that override, as Marianne was saying, the First Amendment rights of the platforms themselves to set their own editorial policies? So Marianne, you're an expert on cyber civil liberties. You've done work on cyberbullying, harassment, revenge porn. Should, should Section 230 be used as a way of reining in this sort of content? Well, at the moment, what Section 230 is doing, I, you know, in the worst instance, is it's actually encouraging this kind of content. And that's right. something that I think we're not grappling with. So it isn't just a question of should we repeal? How should we repeal it? It's, I think we have yet really in a broad sense understood and confronted the fact that the reason why these things exist in the form that they do is because for 20 years, this industry has essentially had a blank check. So there's no problem that we could really point to today, whether it's revenge porn or harassment or medical um, misinformation that can't be attributed in some ways to these tech platforms themselves and their irresponsibility when they were rolling out their services and their platforms. So to the extent that Section 230 is continuing that status quo, and importantly here, I think, to keep in mind that this is a status quo that is devastating for free speech. We can't separate these things. When people have to worry that they're going to be um, attacked online, that their, public, their private information is going to be posted publicly, or that they're going to get death threats, or that they're going to become a target by an online mob, they can't speak freely, right? So, there's no way to separate out these issues from the question of preserving free speech. We always have to think about free speech in terms of who's getting to speak. And if what you have, whether it's through government channels or through private channels, if all that you're really getting is domination by the same forces that have always dominated the channels of communication, we haven't achieved anything good in terms of our free speech principles. So can Section 230 do something about that? Yes, because right now it's serving as the excuse that a lot of these companies have to not do anything there if there isn't um, any kind of legal responsibility and i'm overstating it slightly there's some but if there's not much legal liability if there's very little chance that any of these companies ever have to take responsibility for the kinds of harm that are being facilitated on their platforms and services we have to ask ourselves what possible incentive they have to do anything about it other than bad pr so I think that the question here has to be, how can we modify Section 230 to make it what it was allegedly supposed to be in 1996? There's a part of the title of Section 230 that calls it the Good Samaritan um, section, which if you think about what that means in any other context, a Good Samaritan is someone who doesn't have a duty of care, who decides that they're going to try to help regardless. And if they do try to help, then they're not going to be sued for their efforts. We should make Section 230 into a proper Good Samaritan law which would mean, first of all, that it can't apply to platforms that do have a duty of care, at least not to allow for people to be threatened and harassed and have their lives ruined on these platforms and services, and make it so that that immunity attaches to that idea that if you don't have a duty of care and you are gratuitously doing good or attempting to do good for someone to try to prevent or address injury, then you shouldn't be on the hook for any kind of litigation that comes out of that. And apart from that, they shouldn't be protected. Thank you. you know, I'd like to, to jump in on that. Yeah, I was just, going to ask just you to address because that because I think, in the practice. 
company point of view since you've been assistant general counsel for Google. So if you could address that issue, we haven't got many minutes left, but please do take it up, Daphne. Well, I, I, I certainly can't represent the company point of view. I left Google in 2015. Um, but I think but you many people would characterize the way CDA 230 works quite differently. It was explicitly designed as a law to encourage and enable platforms to go beyond what the law requires and to have moderation policies for all of this lawful but awful speech that we're concerned with now. And so the freedom that platforms have to enforce policies against hate speech and against disinformation is directly rooted in CDA 230. Um, this was Congress's intention. They wanted to ensure that platforms would be able to do this. Uh, and so I, th I think as we think about, is it possible to change CDA 230 in a way that improves incentives? Um, the question is whether we risk taking away the incentives the law gives them now and the freedom that the law gives them now to, to go out and, and do the moderation that we are seeing. Um, it is, I, I have yet to see a concrete proposal um, that would enable and encourage platform content moderation without risking exposing them to liability for the undertaking that very moderation, essentially uh, running into what's called the moderator's dilemma, where because the platform is carrying out due diligence, because it is acting more like an editor, because it is engaging more with user content, courts decide that it faces liability for whatever un unlawful content gets accidentally left up. Um, and so while I think um, at a high level, it may sound appealing to say, well, you should have to do good things to maintain the immunity. In practice, it's very hard to define a system that would actually achieve that more than CDA 230 already does. I'm going to finish with a very difficult question that you both need to answer very quickly. That is, if you could magically create a regulatory system, what would it look like? And again, a couple of sentences from each of you. That's all we've got time for. I would just Mary say Anka. that. I would Go ahead. I would just say that it's not that hard to do. What we need to do is treat the tech industry essentially like other industries are treated, which is to say you have to absorb the consequences of your negative actions. So if you are acting with deliberate indifference towards injurious um, conduct or content, then you can be sued. It's not a bad thing for a company to worry about being sued. That's how we get big companies that are multi-billion dollar companies to care about the harm that they're causing to people. That harm is going to happen. That injury is happening right now. We are seeing the consequences of this every single day. And until we actually have a regulatory system that it tells these powerful companies, you have to take some responsibility for that. We're not going to achieve anything close to a functioning democracy or free speech principles. Marianne, thank you. And Daphne? Again, I would want to see a lot more transparency uh, with companies disclosing more about what they are doing and when they are making mistakes, taking down the wrong content, taking down content in ways that has disparate impact potentially based on race, gender, considerations like that. And I would want to see a lot bigger role for courts. Uh, I think it is a problem if we open up new liability and then just pitch it to companies and say, here, you decide what to do and you don't even have to tell us what it is and you're going to do it in the face of fear of liability. So if we did want to make any changes, it would be essential for there to be a role for courts in saying this is what's illegal and this is not what's illegal and for a company's obligations to stem from real judicial determinations, not from whatever they decide in the back room. Marianne Franks, Daphne Keller, thank you very much for joining Washington Post Live today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.